3: And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much.
4: This might be the one time I'm speaking. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double-check the envelope?
2: And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you.
1: This is nuts. It's a tie.
2: I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar
1: goes and to... The Oscar
3: goes and the Oscar two.
5: goes to... My only object
3: in being
1: here is to try and get out of the
2: truth. That's like a watch like this. He's looking at you, kid. Right my dear, I don't give a. I could have been a contender. Pass your... I could have
3: been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me, Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an offer again. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fatherly. For Frodo. And a nice clean. Don't laugh! I can't stop what's coming.
5: This ain't reality TV. I will not fall into
4: the You hate bloggers! You mock Twitter. It's time, Robbie. It's
5: fast. Welcome to the next Best Picture podcast.
4: Oscar goes
0: to. Okay, Coda. <laughs>
5: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 293 of the Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. Time recording is 11.06am on May 8th, 2022. Here to join me today for this episode, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Amy Smith. Hi, everyone. Nadia Dalamonte. Hello. And Tom O'Brien. And happy Mother's Day. And a happy Mother's Day indeed to all of the moms listening out there and to all the listeners who have moms out there. As J.K. Simmons once said during his Oscar speech, call your mom. Just call them. (laughs) Say hello. Talk to them. Ask them questions. Show them some love. Not just today, but all days. Because every day is precious, as we all know here. And today is a precious day indeed because... It is 293. We are one step closer to episode 300, which is, of course, going to be a Zack Snyder-themed episode. Sorry, did I just ruin that for everybody? Um, Oh, boy. I I was thinking we could shout the entire episode, you know, go shirtless. Well, for the guys, at least. Uh, You know, it'll be fun. Half of it will be in slow motion, yeah. Yeah, 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 (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Lots of blood and guts, you know? Inconsistent CGI. (laughs) (laughs) Ragged fan bases, yes. Uh, This is going to be a fun episode here. We're going to be talking about a development this week that I know was very, very interesting for all of us to hear, which was that they uh, recently announced that the SAG Awards um, is currently a casualty of the Discovery Warner Brothers merger and will no longer air on TBS and TNT. So we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We're going to go over the polls. We'll answer fan questions. And this week I kept it kind of broad. I didn't ask anyone to ask us questions on anything specific. So... I don't know. We might get some personal questions this week, uh, but that could be good because we do have a new team member here in Nadia. So, Nadia, this will give us a good opportunity maybe to get to know you a little bit more as well. And we're going to discuss the trailer for a little movie called Don't Worry Darling, starring Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, directed by Olivia Wilde, co-financed by Jason Stakis. No, I'm kidding. Um... (laughs) going to be a really really fun show here but before we get into any of that i want to first ask what everyone has been watching this week either at home or in the theater so amy why don't we start off with you
2: yeah so it's been a relatively quiet week for me this week the main thing on the calendar was doctor strange in the multiverse of madness i was on the podcast yesterday so if you want to hear my full thoughts you can check that out um but just to summarize this is the most disappointed I think I've been in a Disney Marvel project. I had such high expectations going into this, and the story just let me down, regardless of Sam Raimi's wonderful direction in it. So I know people will watch it anyway, so I can't really say go watch it or don't watch it. You'll make your own choice in that, but I was let down by that. I did also watch the final episode of Moon Knight, and it really solidified to me that this is my favourite um disney plus marvel show today i really like the direction that they took i know people have been arguing about whether they liked the final fight scene and the creative choice to kind of not show it but i think that really helped push the narrative forward and i think it also reflected back to the first episode where we saw that sort of blackout and i think it was just a sort of fitting way to hint at a second season that we're still waiting to get confirmed um Other than that, I haven't watched much. Um, So I like to watch a lot of sitcoms, and I've been catching up with a lot of the classic ones. I've just finished The Office US for the first time, which was wonderful. So now I've moved on to Parks and Recreation, which I'm also really enjoying. So that's kind of been my comfort thing for me over the past week or two.
5: Nice. Nice. Great. And let's now hear from Nadia Dalamonte.
0: So I had a pretty great theater experience this week. So I watched two movies, which ended up being two of the most fun experiences I've ever had in a theater. So the first one was The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent.
5: Oh, my God. What a fun movie.
0: So much fun. And I I had such a great time watching that one. And I think not only does it serve as this kind of... Great tribute to Nicholas Cage, and it's such a treat for Nicholas Cage fans. But I think it also is a vehicle for him as an actor to see his own charm and talent come through. In that he kind of very seamlessly slipped into this kind of meta role, and um, really brought an emotional weight to to the experience. Plus, he had fantastic chemistry with Pedro Pascal who was also very, very funny in that role. And when the movie was just the two of them roaming around, that for me was the movie at its best. So I just really, really enjoyed that one. Plus there's that, of course, shout out to Paddington 2, which I mean, I was on board with the movie before that happened. And that was just like a little cherry on top. So (laughs) really, really enjoyed that.
5: And Pedro Pascal. Oh, yeah. He's fantastic in it.
0: He's incredible. Yeah. He kind of plays around with what your expectations are of that character as well. Um, so he's just great. And he, again, his chemistry with Nicolas Cage is so entertaining. And the second movie was finally Everything, Everywhere. Yay! Yay! Mm-hmm. So inventive and energetic and just an all-absorbing experience that I'm still processing and I don't know what else can be said about Michelle Yeoh that's not already been said, but I will gladly join in the praise. She's absolutely incredible in this movie. So funny and heartwarming and just a multi-layered performance. And I think just as in terms of the storytelling by the Daniels, there's so much, there's so many layers to peel back on and to think about one of being the, You since this Mother's Day today, the depiction of a mother daughter relationship that really really resonated. Um, So seeing that dynamic play out and just it was such an incredible experience. I walked out of that theater kind of giddy and in awe about what I had just seen and just it just reminded me why I love movies so much. Um, So I really 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 enjoyed that as well. And then I did some catching up on TV. I binge watched heartstopper on Netflix
5: which i've heard is excellent
0: oh it's so delightful it's so wholesome so it's created and written by Alice Oseman, and it's based on her graphic novel as well so which is really cool because you can really feel that in the way the episodes are edited with a lot of hand drawn animation popping out it's so it's so wonderful i loved every minute of it i at the end of the first episode it had me i was in tears already so it's just wonderful. And I hope more and more people get to see it.
5: I'm hesitant to start watching it just because I know how fickle Netflix can be with their series. And I'm waiting for more seasons before I invest because this is just like the kind of thing I feel like that they would usually give the axe to.
0: That's the thing. And I'm so worried about that. I hope they don't because it seems like there's such an enormous push behind this. I mean, everybody seems to be loving it, so I really, really hope that doesn't happen. I hope they uh, really invest in this further.
5: Yeah. Well, well, fingers crossed. We'll see. And also, too, if there's a multiverse, action-packed movie with a mother-daughter relationship that you are going to see this weekend, it is not Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. By all means, please go to your local theater and see Everything Everywhere All at Once. (laughs) Lord knows it could really use your box office support than the other movie, so... All right. Tom O'Brien.
1: Well, I promised myself it was going to be a TV week, but of course I got sidetracked by movies. Uh, it turned out to be a surprisingly busy movie week for me. Um, I wasn't joining on the podcast yesterday, but my take on Doctor Strange, not a fan. Uh, I was really excited to hear that Sam Raimi was back, and there were some wonderful Raimi touches now and then. That fight with the musical notes is just a joy. Yeah. But the Marvel aesthetic since he's been uh, since the Spider-Man days has gotten so heavy. I think it just smothered him. Uh, I really and that script, uh, the twists and turns that these actors have to do to conform to what they throw at them here. And the lines were so bad. I'm with Amy. It's one of the most disappointing Marvel films I've seen in a long time. So there's that. On a better uh, on to better things, though, i I did see pleasure. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, wow. A film about the porn business, and it delivers. Um, there's a lot of sex in it, a lot of nudity, male and female. Um, but what I liked about it, it spent the same amount of time, if not more, on the business part of sex business. And uh, what I particularly liked was the fact that it made no no moral judgments on the women who participate in the industry. They, they are treated n- neutrally, no no uh, disrespect at all, and you really do respect everybody, all the women in it, at least, by the end. Uh, it's You gotta know what you're getting into. It's a little rough, probably not the best date night movie, but if you're comfortable with the subject matter, you're gonna find this a fascinating portrait. I would highly recommend it. I believe it's gonna open in limited release this coming
5: Friday. Right from the uh, opening shot, I remember thinking to myself, oh, this will never get a wide release, period. (laughs) And then when I saw that A24, you know, sold it off, I was like, okay, well, this makes sense. They probably don't know, like, how to market it. They probably realize they're not going to make much money off of it. Like, this is exactly what I was expecting. I have to give all the credit in the world to Neon for not only picking it up, but giving it the push that they have been giving it over the last couple of weeks. And then also, too, the film has benefited, I think, from a small word of mouth like rollout, both with its Sundance premiere and then also uh, being nominated at the Spirit Awards last year. So every film independent member had that screener. So in our circles, this movie has been building up a lot of goodwill because of the things that you just said, Tom, I echo everything you said there. So now that it's finally being released, I do hope that people do check it out because it is exactly the kind of provocative yet challenging uh, movie that I don't think is exploitive, but actually will hopefully, like I said, just challenge you and how you view this industry, the people within it, and hopefully open up our eyes to see that there's uh, some real humanity there.
1: Absolutely agree. Uh, a very different film. I did catch, finally, caught, I caught the Duke. It's it's fine. Oh, that was nice. It's a lovely film. It's nice final film by Roger Mitchell. Um, I know we've talked about it before on the show. Um, the few subplots seem to not go anywhere, and it gets a little bit soggy at times. We have seen Jim Broadbent and Helen Mirren act together. It's just a joy. Uh, these two, these two actors, really seem to know each other's rhythms. And you really believe that these two characters are a longtime married couple. Um, it's, I'd say this is probably a movie you, your mother would love. And it would be a great choice if you want to take her out on Mother's Day. Okay, okay, fair enough. And finally, I took a virtual trip up to the central coast of California for the San Luis Obispo Film Festival.
5: Oh, so you really went out of your way to watch some movies this week. <laughs> I guess I
1: did. They have a virtual component, so I was able to see it here. Uh, it's a really good small festival. It's got a number of local filmmakers, uh, which I always like to see in festivals. And it's, uh, it leans very heavily on the docks. And I saw two docks there, both of which I'd missed at festivals last year. Uh, and I'm glad, I, I'm glad I caught them. The first one was called Alien on Stage. Hmm, Okay. It describes what it is. It's it's a group of local bus drivers in a small town in southern England. They put on an amateur production of the 1979 Ridley Scott movie on stage.
4: Okay. Um I th- I think
1: I have heard of this. This does sound very familiar. <laughs> yes. It, this really happened and as it and it turned out that the the two women who made this film caught that happened that amateur production and thought of an idea for a film and they arranged for this very amateur production to have a one night only performance in the West End in London mm. and that this is the story of them preparing for their big night in Leicester Square now I was a little bit worried when it started because I was afraid the filmmakers were kind of making fun of these people Because clearly they're way out of their league. We love the—they're ambitious, but they—you know—it's—it's—it's amateur. But you really come to care with these people after a while, and uh, you know their their big dream of playing at the West End, and. The film itself, it's only 84 minutes long. It's a little loosey-goosey. I think it might have actually worked a little bit better if if the idea was taken as a scripted film, like Guffman or something like that. But the warmth the theater audience has for this particular production is they kind of have these makeshift... The alien creatures popping out of stomachs and the the like. It's it's very fun to watch, and it's very good-natured and good-hearted. And if you ever get a chance to see it, it's really a lot of fun, especially Josh, because I know you're a fan.
4: Yeah, what is the name of it again, Tom?
1: It's called Alien on Stage. Alien on Stage, okay. Yeah,
4: (laughs) I I do think I have heard of this, and yes, it sounds very, very much up my alley.
5: (laughs) I seem to remember reading an article, like a headline about it, uh, back when the original, like, Stage production was put on because somebody said it was like the most imaginative, coolest thing ever.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And in its own way, it is. So uh, if if it ever comes across uh, your path, uh, by all means, try and catch it. Okay. The last one I saw was a doc that had limited release uh, already. The one I finally got to was Lisa Hurwitz's *The Automat*.
5: Oh wow, yeah, that was from last year.
1: Last mm-hmm. year, uh, it it did get a limited release in some cities, but it hasn't come out here. So uh, I, I kind of wanted to catch it. It really explained the appeal of this one of a kind eatery, which flourished both in uh, New York and in Philadelphia. Um, it's the story of you know a lot of the story is about how it got started and the idea of having this you know, slice a pie behind the door and you put a nickel in and you get it. Uh, but it it kind of also takes on a commentary of a class structure because at that time, and this is in the 40s and 50s, um, people of all classes came to eat at the automat. And the way it was set up, there were tables where everybody had to sit together and, you know, and enjoy their meal together and upper class would dine with lower class. And it was really very, very cool. There's a lot of reminiscences. It's great to see Ruth Bader Ginsburg again and Colin Powell. And, of course, Mel Brooks is he improves any movie he's in. And uh, his commentary and his final song is wonderful. Uh, it's a, it, surprisingly substantial. And uh, I would highly recommend it if it comes across your way. the automatic.
4: All right. Josh Parham, we're up to you. So I did get a chance to see Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness as well. And my feeling just overall is that it is very flawed. I do agree. But I think those Raimi touches did do a lot to invest me more in the film as somebody who's not a big fan of the MCU. Just in general, I think whenever they have a director that can actually show some of his own like style there like I tend to really respond to that so it's not perfect I definitely will agree but it had enough like interesting things in it that it kind of kept me invested but I understand why it would not work for other people but it kind of worked for me overall I would say um I also got to see Vortex the new Gaspar Noé movie and this one I, man, I respect what he's going for. I like that it is actually a lot more subdued than his other films, but I just don't think it needed to be two hours and 20 minutes. I feel like completely agree. Like I kind of got it pretty quickly. It didn't need to be that long. I, and I do respect what he's going for. I do think that the performances from everybody in that movie are really good, but I just think at a certain point, it was kind of spinning its wheels a bit. It did not need to be that long. I kind of grew disinterested, but a good, Concept just overstretched, in my opinion.
5: Yeah, I remember Tom and I saw this together and walking out, we talked about it pretty extensively. And that was the one thing that we all just kept coming back to was, man, if this was like 90 minutes, this could have been one of the most intense gut punches of a movie that we've ever experienced. But And then we started arguing, well, maybe because it was long and drawn out, that also was kind of the point in terms of it being like this grueling experience that one has to like just get through. And that's like kind of reminiscent of real life as well. So it was an interesting conversation. But ultimately, I agree with you. It should have been shorter.
4: Yeah, I, I understand what sort of the the concept of it being that long is supposed to be. But I just did not feel like it was that successful, in my opinion. So yeah. interesting things in there. But overall, it just didn't really work for me. Uh, I did catch up with a couple things on Netflix. I saw this documentary they have called White Hot, which is their Abercrombie & Fitch documentary that most people are sort of referencing it as. And it was fine. like It it was informative, but also kind of... I don't know if it gave you too much information that seemed like surprising (laughs) if you had any uh, sort of recollection of that company during its heyday. I don't think anything in this documentary will shock you at all, but... You know, for a light watch, it was fine and entertaining for what it was. Uh, and then I also saw this animated movie on there called The House, which I'd been hearing about. And it's a stop motion film that's basically three different types of stories that all revolve around not the same house, but sort of similar. Uh, and these like three sort of horror ish stories. Um, the first two I thought were good. Not great, but good. The last one actually has this really interesting kind of emotional, metaphorical reveal to it that I just found to be actually really effective. It's sort of hard to explain exactly what they're about, but I would just say if you're into like kind of creepy adult leaning stop motion films, I would definitely say you should watch this one because it was very, very interesting. I did like it quite a good deal. And uh, outside of that, I did just a bunch of rewatches. Um, After Doctor Strange, I rewatched Drag Me to Hell because I just felt like going back into that world. And man, that movie is so fun. What a blast. Such a fun movie. Oh, I remember watching that movie in theaters when it came out. And it is honestly one of my favorite movie going experiences. And, you know, it doesn't have quite as much power at home, but I would still recommend it. And uh, the last thing that I also rewatched, I was still in sort of a horror mood. So I rewatched this movie called The Relic which is a monster movie from the 90s that um, takes place in Chicago in the Field Museum. And it's got Tom Sizemore in it and it's streaming on HBO Max. So it's a it's a really like very entertaining, like I said, kind of creature feature. And I would very much recommend that one if that is of interest to you. Nice. Love it. Awesome. Uh, I had a
5: bit of a light week in terms of movies. I saw Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and for my thoughts on that, you can listen to our podcast review. Um, Suffice to say, like everyone else that has talked about here, um, I was also on the weaker side of things with it. But for more of my thoughts, by all means, give that a listen. Uh, Outside of that, I've been catching up on a lot of television. I think this is like the most television I have watched in a small span of time in my entire life. Uh, Definitely the most shows I'm watching simultaneously uh, as they're airing. Uh, Because I normally don't do that. I normally stick to like one show at a time. Uh, But lately, I've just been kind of throwing myself into it. So I've been watching Under the Banner of Heaven starring Andrew Garfield. That's really good. The staircase with Colin Firth. I, I think Colin Firth is amazing in this so far. And if you've seen the documentary that this is based on on Netflix as well, oh my God, what a, what a story! I mean, the twists and turns that that case takes—it's it, riveting stuff. And I think they're translating it very, very well so far on HBO. Uh, speaking of HBO, Barry is back and it's darker and funnier than ever. And I hate that it's only a half an hour every single week because I want more every time an episode ends. Um, and then Better Call Saul, I think, is the best thing currently on television at this time. I th- I think it's a masterclass in cinematography, characterization, plotting, everything that they're doing in that show. They have not made a misstep yet. It's really, really incredible all around. Uh, but I also started watching Abbott Elementary because uh, that was recommended to me by a few people, and of course, as per the course of what everyone has been saying, it is delightful. <laughs> it is amazingly delightful it is yeah no I've really loved every single moment of it so far and I intend to keep watching it Uh, and then what else what else Um, I'm losing track honestly because there's just been so much lately Uh, I I I mean there's more but like those those are probably the main ones I would say so oh oh yeah I I caught up with uh, Moon Knight um, and I finished that as well which I thought Oscar Isaac gave a really really good performance in it like scarily good
2: it might be my favorite thing he's done which is saying a lot for
5: him. yeah seriously i i was really blown away especially in the penultimate episode uh mm-hmm. what he was doing in that was I, I legitimately thought like when i compare him to michael keaton and Dopesick or colin firth in the staircase i think i might even ooh, i think i might cast my vote for oscar isaac honestly because he was really really good in that Anyway, more to come on that when we come back for Next Best Series, which we've been doing podcasts of every month now. So we'll have more shows to talk about on those episodes in a couple of days here.
4: Hi, everyone. This is Tim Costa. I'm Hermano da Silva. And this is Walter Vinci. And together we are the First Time Watchers Podcast. Each week we choose a movie to review that none of us has seen. Watch it together. And then discuss. These movies could be new. Or old. Or on our list of shame. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The First Time Watchers Podcast. As well as on Stitcher! And we love interacting with our listeners, so if you have any suggestions, send us a tweet. An email. Or post to our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. That's right. I mean, it's all about interaction. And talk about what we love. Movies. And you don't have to worry about us it. going on and on about this and that and the other. And oh looks, let's talk about here. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. God watch. damn it, shut up! I think, shut I
5: think up. that's enough all oh time. <laughs> We found out this week, as I mentioned earlier, that the SAG Awards are no longer going to be airing on TBS and TNT anymore. So they need a new home. And this has been uh, brought about because of the Warner Brothers uh, Discovery uh, merger. They're cutting their losses here. And uh, it seems like anything that is, uh, you know, part of like, uh, you know, the Ted Turner, like TBS, TNT, True TV, like all that's like kind of on the uh, chopping block right now. But. SAG Awards have been uh, airing on TNT since 1998. They originally were with NBC in 1995 for the first couple of years. Uh, But this has been, you know, a couple decades here of being on this one network, and now they need a new place to go. So where do we think they're going to ultimately end up? And what do we think is going to happen as a result of that change? Because I actually think that there is an opportunity here for Visag Awards to reinvent themselves with a new network home.
4: Yeah, there is that potential. I I really don't know where they will go. It's so it's so difficult now because all of these like platforms are owned by fewer and fewer big companies now these days. And it's like, well, there's only so many places you can go and do these companies want another award show. And I don't know who is going to get that because like, ABC's already got the Oscars and maybe the Golden Globes will come back to NBC. Who knows? And I, I, I don't know where they would go. I don't think it's going to go to a streaming service. I feel pretty confident about that. I still think that those shows have so much ad revenue that they're not going to want to give that up completely. But I still think it's an open question as to where it will eventually end up and be shown.
0: Yeah, I think... my first thought was maybe CBS. Mm, okay. Maybe. Yeah. I'm not sure, but...
5: Um. Yep. I think what Josh said about the ad revenue is very important because I do keep seeing people saying all the time, oh, it should just go to Hulu. It should just go to Netflix. I don't think people are factoring in that, yes, even though this is not like a ratings juggernaut on the same level as, say, the Oscars, the fact that this is the show where the majority of the country, if they know that it is airing and they know that it, like it's something to watch on a Sunday night, it's the only show... Maybe outside of the Golden Globes, where majority of the people uh, represented on the show are faces that the audience recognizes. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that is something that I think is very valuable and can be utilized to honestly make this a bigger show than it has been before. Because like the last couple of years when the SAG Awards have aired, I've actually been kind of surprised by how much like well, how little interest actually there is in the show because there seems to be this perception that the only people that uh, the general audience cares about are actors. You know, we saw that uh, reflected by the Academy Awards this year when the main categories were televised and anyone else that is an unrecognizable name or category that the general audience doesn't seem to care about, they were uh, pre-taped and edited later into the show itself. So you would think that, the SAG Awards would get a bigger audience. And I think that maybe if they move to a new network and that network kind of rebrands the show and gives it an actual marketing push, I really do think there is a world where the SAG Awards can be uh, bigger than what they currently are at this time.
1: Yeah, I I think that uh, it would probably have to be a network that uh, whose audience really appreciates stars? So I, I think the I think the the guests of CBS might be the best.
5: I, I thought you were going to joke for a minute and say stars, Tom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, there is something when you actually watch the content of the show, the speeches that the actors give after being given this accolade by their peers are much more, very often much more emotional because they. it really brings home when they look out in that sea of faces of people they admire, uh, that, that really that kind of feeling of being a part of a family is, it really kind of comes through. And I find the speeches at the SAG Awards generally better than almost any other um, award show. And I think a network could really use that.
5: I'm pretty confident that the Golden Globes are coming back. I'm like 85% confident. And because of that, I've heard some people say like, oh, they should just take the Golden Globes' spot. But I just, I don't see that, I don't see that happening.
4: If the Globes are coming back. Yeah, well, but I'm pretty confident that they are. I mean, do you think they are? Um... I still feel like the jury's out on that a little bit. I mean, the Golden Globes will come back if the studios are willing to work with them. Like, that's the main thing, because it doesn't really matter if NBC wants to put on a show for them if they can't get into, you know screenings for these movies and have people participate in their panels and stuff, like if studios don't want to participate in the Globes, that that is going to be the key to them surviving. I feel like that's still a question mark. But if that is the case and the Globes are going to be back on NBC, then, yeah, I don't think they would want two shows on the
5: same network. It is very interesting, though, because I was thinking about this the other day. You know, we were talking about a second ago about like the ad revenue that one can get from them being on a network. However, it does seem like the people who do watch television nowadays, and especially the audience for award shows in general, is no longer skewing older, but it seems to be uh, skewing younger. And the younger demographic are the people that have cut the cord and don't even have cable
4: subscriptions. True, but so many of these networks now also have streaming components to them as well. So Like if it does go to like CBS, they've got Paramount Plus at the same time. So maybe it won't be shown live on streaming, but they can put it up there later, which is actually something that the SAG Awards already did, because I believe the most recent one is on HBO Max right now. I think so, too. Yeah, I remember overhearing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that could be a possibility as well, you know, considering that so many of these Uh, networks also have their own streaming platform. So that could be something else to factor into it. The one thing I know for sure is we're going to have a SAG Awards this year. Yeah.
5: There's no way that they're not going to, you know, because of this development, not have a show.
4: Oh, yeah, I, I definitely do agree with that. The other thing that I'm actually thinking more about with this is just the general state of a lot of these properties. Uh, since this merger happened, like, I, honestly, I'm worried that TNT and TBS may not even exist <laughs> at a certain point. It, it feels kind of like they're just jettisoning a lot of properties right now. And I'm a little bit more worried about just the overall kind of package of what that place looks like, considering um, it just seems like the merger doesn't want to have a lot of other extra things around.
5: It just makes me think of uh, Sydney Lumet's network. Constantly. And that speech, that speech that Ned Beatty uh, gives to uh, Howard Beale about the way the world works and like how all these companies are going to eventually like just rule our entire like entertainment consumption. And it just seems like you were saying before, I think, Josh, like just fewer and fewer companies are like the only games in town now. They're the only places that people can take their content to. And it becomes really, really tricky at a certain point uh, to have a marketplace that is open and available for people to be able to display their content if they get shut out of even one of these companies. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a very, very interesting uh, time as far as, like, what other decisions uh, are made and what the consequences are of this merger. Uh, But, like I said before, right now, very, very confident that there will be a SAG Awards this year uh, in some shape, form or another. I'm confident that they will be able to pick up a new home uh, b- you know, by the time we get around to the next awards ceremony. The question just is which network and are they going to do the same thing? You know, like the whole I'm an actor opening uh, speech, which is something that I know a lot of us are fans of. Are they going to try and do something new with it that we haven't seen before? I am very, very fearful in general of just the overall presentation of award shows the last couple of years. I think the Oscars, I mean, we talk about this ad nauseum, the Oscars are definitely at an identity crisis right now in terms of uh, what they want to present to the world and also uh, what they want to gain from, you know, their overall ceremony in terms of the ratings and uh, the deals that they have in place with uh, ABC. (sighs) You know, with that going on, the Globes currently not airing this year. Still a question mark of whether or not if they're coming back. And now, this, I mean, Jesus Christ, Critics' Choice is all that's left. <laughs> like, you, you, know. you
4: do not want to make comparisons to Critics' Choice. That a terrible <laughs> show. <laughs> no, I would actually say that currently the SAG Awards actually put on the best show because they show every category and it's like two hours. They get in and get out. There's no host. There's like no BS with that show. So I would hope that they don't really meddle with it that much because I think it actually works pretty perfectly as is. Yeah.
2: My big fault on this is whether they actually start to make it more international because as a British Oscar pundit, the only thing we get access to right now is BAFTA and Oscars. We don't get to see the Golden Globes. We don't get to see SAG. We don't get to see Craig's Choice. So I'm interested to see if moving to a different network, we're actually going to work with maybe some of the UK channels to see if we can air it over there or make it at least somewhat accessible. Because we're talking about reaching a worldwide sort of global audience. They're not. It's so restricted to America that I'm having to catch up on Twitter or watch uh, what, like the accepted speeches days later on YouTube. Just to actually see what was said, to see how the campaign's forming. So I'd love to see, at least one of these shows, make an attempt at making their audience worldwide.
5: Oh, good call.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, that's a great point, Amy. Because as a Canadian, we didn't even get the Saga Awards at all. It didn't. It just we didn't get it on TNT slash TBS. So I, I was the same as you, having to catch up on Twitter and looking for a live stream. So it could be an opportunity to expand in that way and kind of, um, you know, think of what the international approach would be.
5: All right. Uh, What I want to do now is I want to just go over uh, some small pieces of news. Uh, We don't have to have like, uh, you know, wide discussion on these points here, but these are some important bullet points I do want to bring up really quick. First things first, uh, everything everywhere all at once having incredible legs at the box office right now. I believe last week it dropped a 0%. Zero. Incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it is currently on on pace right now to possibly even be a 24's uh, biggest hit to date, which I just find all of this to be miraculous. And I can't wait. Like every week, it's like I can't wait to see like what it's going to do. I mean, I think this week obviously is going to be, you know, the most hurtful because of the release of Doctor Strange but word of mouth is still very, very strong. I still have uh, random people in my life that are not involved in this industry. Asking me about this film. I just took my best friend to see it recently in IMAX. It was my third time going. He really liked it and expressed that he wants to go see it again. So just keep telling friends, people. That's all I got to say about that. Plus it's finally opening in
2: the UK market next week. I'm, Finally, getting to see it on yay! So So, that word of mouth and that buzz, and hopefully, we get because there's not really much releasing next week. I think it's that and Firestarter. So, hopefully, we get it in the theaters, and hopefully, we get a good box office return for it.
4: Yeah, it's crazy that everything everywhere all at once, I think, right now has made more money in the US box office than like. Almost every best picture nominee from this previous year, I think Dune is the only thing obviously that made more money, but I think everything everywhere has made more than every single other one of the best picture nominees.
5: Oh, perfect timing. I just got a notification here that Doctor Strange made one hundred and eighty five million dollars this weekend. Uh, I am scrolling right now to see if there's any word on Everything Everywhere, anywhere. I remember hearing that it was about to hit 40. Yeah. So, Everything Everywhere all at once, uh, is in fifth place this weekend, bringing in $3.3 million. Uh, so, it is currently up to $41 million in North America at this time. Yeah.
4: Wow. That is absolutely astounding.
5: Yeah. I'm really, really ecstatic for this uh, for this film and everybody that's involved with it. It's still my favorite film of the year so far, and I just want nothing but the best for it. Uh, what else we have here? Oh, we got a chance to hear the uh, new single from Talk Gun Maverick. Hold My Hand by Lady Gaga. Did you all take a listen to this?
4: I, I did not, actually. And the only reason I didn't is because I tend to have a really big hang up about listening to music before the movie comes out and even though it's probably just a credit song I still want to wait until I see the movie. Yeah. Okay, I can I can respect that. Um I think Will Mavity did
5: tweet a couple of days ago though that she shares uh songwriting credits with Hans Zimmer on this movie too. So if it's a score contender like Lady Gaga would be thrown into there supposedly. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Speaking of Hans Zimmer, he's been tapped to score Florian Zeller's The Sun. Uh, which is going to be releasing later on this year. And I, I just love that Zimmer is the kind of director, uh, I'm sorry, film composer, where he can go from big action blockbusters to romantic comedies, to animation, to dramas like this. Like the guy's just so incredibly versatile. It's ridiculous. Yeah,
4: which I feel like it's been a while since we've gotten a more subdued score from Zimmer, which I'm guessing that this is, that's what this is going to be. So I'm very interested in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was announced this week that Venice is going to honor Paul
5: Schrader with the Golden Lion for Career Achievement at this year's Venice International Film Festival.
4: Nope. Well, and he will uh, not be required to turn off his Facebook post
1: for that, probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we live for those. I- <laughs> Uh,
5: And Will Smith's Emancipation, uh, which I know was a huge talking point for us post Oscars and what happened with him over there uh, and what the current state of it was going to be. Apple has announced that they are shifting it to 2023, so it will not be releasing this year uh, for this year's award season.
4: Honestly, kind of expected that to happen. I I figured that they were going to delay it. I mean, just to put more distance between that incident, but also... I think it just makes more sense, too, because then they can just give more attention to Scorsese's film. Do you think that that, too, could move to 2023?
5: Because I have been hearing reports that it might not be ready in time.
4: Is not this like what we talk about with? Like every Scorsese movie that comes up. Any Scorsese film that has like a like a
5: November, December release. Yeah, I remember with Wolf of Wall Street, we talked about this with Silence. We talked about this.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, that is true. I feel like even Hugo had a little bit of this, too. So I just seems like whenever we get a new Scorsese, there's always a conversation of is it going to come out in time? And I for right now, I am assuming that it is going to come out this year. Hey, let Delma do her work is what I say. Yeah. And it's at apple. They got all, they could give him like literally all the money. <laughs> Mm-hmm. True. How many iPads do you need, Marty? <laughs> really?
1: <laughs> What's up, guys? Gerald from Two P's on a Podcast here. Are you just sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I really love some dude in his garage sitting around talking about arbitrary countdowns And his favorite things in the world of movies, music, and TV. Well, guess what? That's me. Please look me up. My name is Gerald, and I am from Two Peas on a Podcast. If you want to subscribe to my Countdown Show, I have a different co host every week. It's often someone from the world of podcasting or entertainment. And we go through our top five favorite things in whatever that week's category is. You can find links to all of our content, subscribe via your favorite podcast app, and follow us on social media. The easiest thing to do is just head to our website, which is www2 I hope you look me up and join the party. It's a lot of fun. See you soon.
5: Let's head on over to now the polls for last week. Uh, we asked everyone, which is your favorite Sam Raimi film for the release of Doctor Strange in the multi. Verse of madness. So Tom O'Brien, Sam Raimi, he's been around the block for a little bit here. It's been amazing to see where his career has gone, despite the gap between Oz, The Great and Powerful, and now with Doctor Strange. I think he's given us quite an eclectic list of films over the years, some of them more
1: enjoyable than others. Uh, what is your favorite? Well, I, I think, I, I joined Josh in Drag Me to Hell. That is so much fun. And, and as much as I do love the horror, Sam Raimi. Those are my favorites. Uh, there is a kind of trash Sam Raimi that I like, and I'm thinking of The Quick and the Dead. Ooh, okay. Ooh, yeah. With Leo and Sharon Stone and Gene Hackman and Russell Crowe in a western, and it's nuts. <laughs> it really is. a very young Leo too. Yes. Yeah, a very young Leonardo. This is like even pre Romeo Juliet Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, and I haven't seen it in years. I'd be kind of fascinated to go back to see uh, just what a what the, the now now the legends of those that was in those films really did, were like back then and interacting in the same movie because they could never they could never do that again. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a one of a kind from uh, Rami. So I'm going to throw that in. All right, great, Amy.
2: Well, it certainly isn't Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, I can tell you that much. Um, (laughs) I I do have an affection for his Spider-Man trilogy, so it might be the obvious answer, but I am going to go with um, Spider-Man 2.
5: It's one of the greatest comic book films of all time. Oh, yeah. You you can't go wrong with it, seriously. Uh, Nadia.
0: So I'm going to join Josh and Tom in saying Drag Me to Hell. Such a fun movie. Great performance by Alison Lohman at the center of it. But I do want to give a shout out to the Spider-Man trilogy as well, because that was just perfect.
5: Even email Peter Parker. That was perfect. Yeah.
0: (laughs) In a kind of strange way. (laughs) That walk down the street kind of a little much, but (laughs) it
4: did give us the memes. So it us that. Yeah. Josh Parham. Yeah. I do really like drag me to hell, as I mentioned earlier, but I also would say that The number one probably for me is Evil Dead 2. I I like all three of those movies in that trilogy, but Evil Dead 2 is the one that kind of gets the perfect balance of horror and comedy like just right. And it's so inventive with his filmmaking. And I think it's like one of the greatest horror movies of all time. So I think that would probably be my favorite if I had to pick one. Uh,
5: And my favorite would probably be I mean, it it probably is Spider-Man 2. But if I could say something other than that, I would say A Simple Plan. That's very much my kind really of good uh, crime film. Yeah. yeah. Great writing in that movie.
4: Yeah. Reminded me a lot of Fargo.
5: Yes. 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 The snow alone. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. Yeah.
5: Billy Bob Thornton. <laughs> well, I mean, for the TV show, at least. Yeah. Anyway, uh, number 10, a movie that I have not seen, actually, uh, The Gift. I haven't seen that either. I've heard interesting things about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number nine. Number nine. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness.
4: All right. New release makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah. And you know what? I don't want to. I, I kind of said this on our podcast the other day. I understand if this movie does have fans. I kind of feel like they're blind fans. <laughs> uh, we don't need to have that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another time. Yeah. Number eight. This is an underrated film, I think, that probably should get a rewatch at some point. Dark Man.
4: I love Dark man, so much. <laughs> that was so fresh. Do, do you think that that's the kind of film that would be remade today? Uh, well, I actually heard something that Raimi said that he was in conversations with Universal about like a legacy sequel or, or something like that. So I, it sounds like there something like that is in the works right now.
5: Oh, that would be great. I would love that. Number seven. Oh, this is a fun pick. Army of Darkness. <laughs>
4: yeah, I mean it's. Th- Personally, for me, that one goes a little too goofy, but it's still a lot of fun.
5: Number six. I like the remake quite a bit, but can't really beat the original. The Evil Dead. Yeah.
4: Yeah, it's great.
5: Number five. Drag Me to Hell. So
4: fun. And it feels like everybody actually was watching that movie this weekend. I saw a lot of chatter on my timeline about yeah. that film.
5: Yeah. Was it like streaming somewhere widely available or something? It's on Hulu right now. Ah, uh, OK. That's why. Number four is A Simple Plan. Mm-hmm. Number three, Spider-Man, the first one, which looking back on it, you know, I, I will admit like there are some moments in it that are very much of its time and a little cheesy by today's standards. But the storytelling in it is still rock
4: solid strong. Yeah. So you can't really beat that. And the cheesiness, I think, is part of its overall charm as well. Which- yeah. 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 For whatever you want to say about the Marvel movies, like the fact that they all look very similar to one another, I think sometimes can be a detriment. And you do watch that 1st Spider-Man movie and it's like, wow, yeah, this is very unique. And does it always work? No, but at least it has its own identity. That's pretty separate.
5: I remember my parents being so enamored with Willem Dafoe's performance in that movie. They were like, oh, that scene when he's from the mirror. Oh my God. I'm like, yeah. and <laughs> And here I am, like, 10 years old, and this is, like, you know, being imparted on to me, like, what great acting is. <laughs> and, and and he is great in it. I don't want to uh, downplay uh, Willem Dafoe. I, he still has moments in that movie that I still, like, quote, you know, like, when he just, like, blurts out, You know how much I sacrifice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. You know, I'm something of a
4: scientist myself. <laughs>
5: I can't.
4: <laughs> yeah. didn't that become a meme that needed to be referenced in another. Spider-Man uh, movie. Don't, remind yeah. Yeah. don't remind me. Don't remind me.
5: Number two. And as you can all guess, it's between the two twos. Which two is it at number two? Number two is Evil Dead 2. Yeah. Number one, Spider-Man 2.
4: Yeah, I pretty much knew Spider-Man 2 was going to win, but I'm glad that Evil Dead 2 was second place.
5: Yeah. Everything that the first Evil Dead film did well, Evil Dead 2 did it like five times better.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, Evil Dead 2 is basically just the first movie again. It has nearly the same identical plot. It just this is the one where they've already done it. So they know a little bit more. The filmmaking is better. Yeah, I love Evil Dead 2.
5: The Hangover sequels should have taken notes. Yeah. Right. Like in terms of like recycling the same plot for a sequel, I mean, like Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2 is kind of the
4: standard on how to do it. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. In fact, I would say the only other time I've seen that replicated with any other franchise to me is the Hunger Games, where Catching Fire is basically the first movie as the first Hunger Games film, except it's just the filmmaking is so much better than that first movie.
5: Yeah, yeah. I, I could also make an argument somewhat maybe for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. See, I would not actually. <laughs> I, I was gonna say, but I understand that there's a like a yeah you know, enough subtle differences. But but I mean, it's still the same thing of like, you know, a killing machine being sent back in time to kill a target, and then that target having a protector. Oh yeah, I mean, I would say that
4: the it has the basically the same story. I would argue about it being better is where I come from. Oh, okay. All right. But that's another conversation.
5: Sure, sure. All right. And then for this week's poll uh, for the release of Firestarter, which is going to be both in theaters and on Peacock this week. So we'll all get a chance to see Zac Efron on fire this week, uh, which should be fun. Uh, We are asking everyone, which is their favorite Stephen King film adaptation? We actually asked this question back in 2017. So it's been five years since we asked this. We added more titles to the list this time around. And I still think that this is going to be a dead heat battle between The Shining and Shawshank when all is said and done, probably. I don't know which one of those two will win out in, in the end, but there's a lot of great options here. I mean, you got Misery, you have the new It, which I, I thought the first It, especially Chapter 1, was fantastic. Uh, the Mist, Gerald's Game, Christine, The Running Man, Pet Cemetery, Apt Pupil. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on here. It's pretty wild considering... How extensive Stephen King's career has been. So which one stands out to all of you as your favorite adaptation of his work, Tom O'Brien?
1: Well, the top two, Shining and Shawshank, certainly. Um, and I really like Carrie. Yeah.
4: I love Carrie. To (laughs) me, that is De Palma's best movie.
1: Yeah. And and for nutty Stephen King, uh, my favorite is The Dead Zone. Okay. All right. You got Cronenberg and Walken. Well, you know, fine. That's me. Great.
5: (laughs) Oh, Cronenberg. I should do a marathon of all of his movies before Crimes of the Future. Oh, Oh, yes. I wonder, like, what it will do to my personality if I were to watch all of his movies in a row. (laughs) Like, would I be, like, irreparably changed by the time that marathon is over? Probably. More than likely. Like, I might turn evil. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Amy, what about you?
2: yeah uh shawshank and shining are definitely top two but i actually want to shout out dr sleep that had such a challenge to balance both the shining film and stephen king's books we all know how much stephen king hates the shining and rebecca ferguson in it oh my god hello there Yeah, that's a haunting performance. So, I think for the challenge it had and to be as entertaining as it was for such a long runtime, I've got to go for Dr. Sleep.
5: That's a movie that I want to revisit. I was very mixed on it when it came out and we did our podcast review on it. But um, I've always said that I've wanted to go back to it later and see how it would play on a rewatch. And I see a lot of people giving a lot of praise. So, you know, definitely, I definitely want to see how that one plays
4: again. Josh? Well, I definitely agree with a lot of the titles that have already been said, especially Carrie, which actually like I think that is a horror masterpiece. I I love that film so so much, but um, I do want to also shout out Stand By Me, which I think is just such an incredible like character study that's so well done. And, you know, one of his like non overtly horror stories that was adapted. And I think it's just like so wonderfully made. I really, really do love that one. Oscar nominee for adapted screenplay. Yeah, and I think it should have had more nominations. I think it's one of the best films of that year. Yeah. Uh, I do also just want to mention, like, a movie that is not great, but I have a lot of fun when I watch it, and that is Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like, not a great movie. Would never argue, but I think it is just, like, a very cheesy 80s fun. I have a blast whenever I watch it.
5: I love that. That is great. (laughs) Nadia?
0: Ooh, this is a toughie. Um, so I agree with everything that's been said so far. Shawshank, Shining, excellent. But I'm going to shout out Misery. Yeah. That tone was just so crazy. And I feel like there were so many opportunities for that movie to just completely fall apart. But Kathy Bates in that movie is in. She's absolutely incredible. And that was one of the first movies that I remember seeing when I was young. And watching it thinking, oh, my God, this is this is acting like this is incredible. She was just wonderful in that movie. So and I don't know how much of it is me just loving Kathy Bates's performance as opposed to the movie itself. But I just want to shout that out because it was really entertaining as well.
5: No, I'm with you. I think that her Oscar win for Best Actress is actually one of the most inspired and best that the category has ever seen. And I, I think she's downright terrifying in that movie, <laughs> especially if you put it like in the context of, you know, a real world setting, uh, the lengths that some fans go to. Uh, yeah, definitely bone chilling for sure.
0: She's terrifying in it.
5: As someone who's been on the receiving end of some very questionable emails in the past, I'm always just like, God, I hope that they don't like find out where I live. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um and then for myself, uh, listen. Listen. Shawshank is one of the greatest movies ever made. Come on. It's my second no, is it my second? No, it's my third favorite movie of all time. So, by default, I'm obligated to say that. But hmm, if I was to throw a bone towards something else, I will say The Apt Pupil is pretty underrated and I think more people should give that a watch. Cujo gave me nightmares as a kid. I haven't seen that movie in so long. So did Pet Cemetery. Um I was I was emotionally scarred by Pet Cemetery for a very, very long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the scene where um, I can't remember anyone's names in this movie, but the scene where the old man uh, gets his Achilles heel sliced. I uh, just oh, that that did it for me. I think I was like seven years old and I just cried and cried yeah. and cried. <laughs> I was so traumatized by that. <clears throat> Uh, There's a lot of really, really good options here, and I'm curious to check out Firestarter. I know that there's already been an adaptation of that, but, you know, it's going to be on Peacock this week. It'll be easy to catch, so why the heck not? We'll see how that plays. Cast a vote on nextbestpicture.com in the poll section. You can choose up to three for this week, so don't feel bad about having to choose one. Feel free to choose three for this week's poll, and we will announce the winners on next week's show. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now let's talk about a trailer that we received this week. Oh, man. After the now infamous CinemaCon showing that this movie had, I know a lot of us heard uh, from the reports of what this trailer was being described by, that you know our excitement was at an all-time high. But then when the trailer dropped and we saw it for ourselves... I think we can all comfortably say that this is something that we all have our eyes on this award season. Coming out September 23rd from Warner Brothers Pictures, starring Florence Pugh, Harry Styles, Chris Pine, Olivia Wilde, Gemma Chan, and Kiki Lane. This is Don't Worry Darling, directed by Olivia Wilde. Let's take a look at the trailer. Let's give some thoughts.
2: You and me. always. Florence Pugh
5: is going to chew this up. So, so, so are you saying that we should call her Florence Chew? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, I agree, though. I think that this looks like it's going to possibly get her back into the best actress conversation, unless if the movie is a complete disaster, uh, which I'm actually not ruling that out. I don't know. Something about the release date, and something about the premise of this, and like the high concept uh, blending of different genres, combined with the bad publicity around Olivia Wilde right now in terms of her, you know, separation from Jason Sudeikis, I do wonder if critics are going to be a little bit harsher towards this movie. I don't know, but it's like a fear that I have at the moment.
4: Yeah, it's hard to say. I just think that this movie is kind of just a tough sell in general. Because I'm going to be honest, like, I didn't really read up on what this movie is about. And after watching the trailer, I still kind of don't know what this movie is about. And I like that from a marketing perspective. It's very intriguing. And it actually does make me want to see the movie more. But I do think that when you're trying to sell that kind of thing to general audiences, that can be rather difficult this is actually one of those occasions where i sort of do wish we were back to the hbo max playing these movies at the same time because i feel like it's going to be a tough sell for people to go out to see it in a theater but might have been easier at home for streaming but i'm still very intrigued by it i mean the. The visuals alone are yes. like selling me so much. Matthew Libetique uh, definitely
5: is delivering some really high quality work here. I, too, am really awestruck by the visuals of this, the production design, the costumes yeah, and all of that. You know, you look at Booksmart, which was Olivia Wilde's uh, first film, and compare just even the trailer for this to that. What a step up for her just in, in terms of overall like production quality. I mean, it's really, really impressive. With that said, this does look like it's going to be one of those Truman Show kind of storylines, I think, where this idyllic 1960s, you know, seemingly perfect town is going to turn out to be some sort of a experiment that's built by some evil corporation that Chris Pine is a part of. That's at least what I'm getting from the trailer for this.
1: Well, I have to protest. Okay. This is my town. I see these houses right out of my window right now. I drive on these streets, and I have never, ever seen a housewife on a roof. It does not. (laughs) And he was
5: alive during the 1960s, people, so. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Palm Springs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, uh... Yeah, I am wondering, like, this starting off as a kind of, like, almost sitcom Desperate Housewives, like, sort of a storyline and then transforming into some sort of a psychological, like, horror thriller story. I I do wonder, like I said, just how the shift is going to go and how Olivia Wilde's going to be able to handle that. But the one thing I know for certain is I know that, Technically, it looks, you know, visually impressive, as we've commented before. And Florence Pugh looks like she's delivering uh, one of, if not her best performances, possibly in this as well.
4: Oh, yeah. Definitely a lot to look forward to. I am still a little murky on like the exact details of this movie, but that's the place I want to be heading into it. So yeah. in that respect, I think the trailer did a great job in selling me. I don't know how great it did to sell other people, but I'm still very, very much looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, and I do love how different this looks and feels from Booksmart. It just mm-hmm. seems like
3: a
4: yeah.
0: direction for Olivia Well to go in. So that's what intrigues me the most. And just going back to the visuals of it all, um, production designer Katie Byron, who worked on Zola last year, which I thought she did a wonderful job on that as well. But I think most of all, just excited to see this performance by Florence Pugh she's just someone who is continuously killing it in every role that she does and I'm just excited to see what she does and also just a shout out to the the rest of the cast here Kiki Lane Chris Pine Gemma Chan it'll be great to see how they work with Wild's direction
5: my guess is that this is going to premiere at Venice and then play again at TIFF and then release like a week or two later
0: Yeah, I can see it popping up at TIFF for sure.
5: I mean, I think it's going to go to TIFF regardless, even if it doesn't show up at Venice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But Warner Brothers has had, uh, you know, some pretty great success uh, bringing their movies to Venice lately. So I wouldn't be surprised to see it over there. But I think TIFF is a given.
4: Oh, yeah. I definitely agree with that. As you said, also, the September release date is kind of weird. It just... I don't know what that signals about like their confidence in the movie, what they want to do with it later for awards purposes. I that to me is still an open question mark, but regardless, I still very much want to see this film. Agreed. I'm looking at Warner Brothers' release
5: schedule for like the rest of the year here. And I mean, they have Creed 3 opening up in November. And everything else outside of that is not really so they're like their their main awards players are Elvis. And don't worry, darling, really.
1: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how, how the release is. Are they going to go super wide or is it going to be in stages? And I think if it's in stages, it'll probably turn out better for awards.
5: I think given the popularity of Harry Styles, something tells me that they might go wide with this.
4: Yeah, I feel that way.
5: I don't think that they'll – I think they'll use the
4: festivals
5: to build the initial buzz. Mm-hmm. But I, I think I don't think they're going to do a
4: limited release for this. I think they're going to I think they're just going to go wide on opening weekend. Yeah, it, it looks great. I I can't wait to see it. And I am going to try to avoid information on it because it seems like I that's the place I'm in right now. And that's what I always like to do when I go into movies. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, let's uh, answer some questions from
5: the MVP film community. Let's see what they had to ask us this week and then we can all get home to our moms. Hey, everyone. I'm Aaron. And I'm Patrick. And together we host the Feelin' Film Podcast, a show that focuses more on the emotional takeaway from a movie experience rather than its technical merit. Yes, sir. Talking about what we love about film and focusing less on the critical side of things makes for a very entertaining and enjoyable discussion. New episodes drop every Monday morning, and you can catch them on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and many other podcasting networks. You can also find out more about the show at feelinfilm.com. In the meantime, as we say on the show, stay positive and keep feeling film. James Robert Scott, with "Can" on the horizon, which film do you think could be the true critical darling of this year's festival? And which film do you think will be the flop of the festival? Oh, boy. (laughs) Well, Decision to Leave, I think, is going to be the critical darling. Probably.
4: Yeah, I'd say either that or um, the Coriata film.
5: Yeah, Broker? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The flop. That's a good question.
2: I was thinking maybe Armageddon Time.
1: Oh, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. What I'm really worried that it's going to be 3,000 years of longing. That's that what I'm afraid of as says. well. Because like
4: Armageddon Time oh. to me seems more like people will say it's fine Three thousand years of logging—that could be the one. That's like this is actually really bad, and especially because there's so much hype around it because of George Miller,
5: and it's playing out of competition. Yeah, yeah. that's the one I'm worried about. Like, why is it playing out of competition? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, I oh god, I hate saying that. I love George Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yep. yeah. We'll see. We'll see. We could be wrong. Only a couple more days, right, Amy?
2: Oh, I'm so so excited.
5: <laughs> Connor Olen. What are some of your favorite female directorial achievements in film that were overlooked by the Oscars? Oh, man. Get in line. Yeah. Portrait yeah. of a
2: Lady on Fire. Number I one. Still love oh. that
1: film. <laughs> and yep. I
2: still think Lynn Skiama had screwed over, not only by the Oscars, but by the French sort of panelists who decide who gets put in for their French selection. But she yeah. needs her justice in soon.
5: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I will say the farewell. Oh, yeah. That's a good one.
2: Love that one as well. There's so many.
4: Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if I'm just talking about recently, I think that Never Rarely, Sometimes Always was just an incredible movie and deserves so much more attention than, uh, I mean, current state of the world right now. I think especially that movie deserves even closer examination.
0: Yeah, I'm with Josh on that one. I just rewatched it recently as well. Fantastic movie.
5: You know what it is? A lot of female directed films are getting more embraced nowadays. So in order to like answer this question, you have to like
4: you you do have to go back a bit now. Yeah, because like the other one I was thinking of, it did get some nominations, but just not a lot and not in major categories. And that is Orlando, the film that honestly might be like maybe even my favorite movie of that year, which is sort of I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm willing to say that definitively yet, because that would mean I like it more than Schindler's List. But I oh, I love that movie so much. And like it got some craft nominations, but it deserved to be in there for like picture, director, actress, screenplay, a bunch of other things. I'll say Claire Denise Beau Travel. That's a good one. Yeah. Adam
5: Clay, do you think at least one blockbuster will be nominated for Best Picture this year? Avatar 2? I mean, that seems like the most likely one. Yes, but I have a feeling that it might not get in this time around. Just because it it will have that whole feeling of, okay, we've been there. We've done that.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's always sort of rare for a blockbuster like that to get in in the first place. And then that's usually like the big shocking surprise. And it doesn't normally happen for the sequel.
1: I'm still expecting it will, given the release date and the hype around it. It'll be what people are talking about coming up to the voting period. So I think it'll get in, but uh, not going to be in, you know, anybody's top five. What
5: about the Black Panther sequel, Wakanda Forever?
4: Uh, I don't think so. That's another one of those movies where it's like, I... (laughs) I need to see more evidence that it exists before I start putting it even into an Oscar lineup. Fair.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking Avatar 2. Like, I get the been there, done that kind of aspect of it. But I do think because it's been so long since the last one, it might actually work in their favor.
5: Just nominate the Batman, you cowards.
0: It's true. <laughs> I'll be
4: happy Yeah, I mean, that. that's not happening. <laughs>
5: no, no. It won't uh, Ian Balakalak, what's a movie, recent or older, that you didn't like on a first viewing but finally came around to on a second viewing? Uh, Uncut Gems, for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I just saw it like with this like terrible sound system and it was just grating and a very like excruciating, terrible experience to watch it in the theater. I also just didn't like Howard as a character. I found him to be so like annoying. And then when I watched it a second time, everything just clicked. Um, I, it just was a much more enjoyable experience for me, uh, the second time. And then every time since then, I've loved that movie more and more and more now in a very, very odd and weird sort of a way that's actually like become one of my comfort watches. I will not be taking any questions at
4: this time. What I mean by that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I mean, this is one of those things where I'm sure that there are like so many other movies that fulfill this criteria that are just not it's just not coming to mind right now so i'm just gonna say that what immediately popped up is that there are a, a lot of bond movies that i remember watching as a kid thinking like <laughs> this is stupid and i don't like it but as i've gotten older and my tastes i'm not gonna say are more refined but they're i know more about what i like and like even some of the sort of sillier bond movies i kind of have appreciated just their quirkiness and their charm to them now so I would say that is what are those are the types of movies that when I was a kid and maybe a little bit more stuck up in my taste I was like Ugh, I don't like that but now I'm more willing to embrace sort of the goofiness of some of those movies and I recognize the charm that they have.
0: Yeah, I think just thinking about the "Don't Worry, Darling" trailer actually it, it gave me some slight Revolutionary Road vibes, and that was the first movie that popped to mind. I really. I felt the first time I saw it, I kind of felt like it was kind of overly theatrical in a way, like a stage play. And I don't think I really appreciated it the first time. But having rewatched it, I want to say about a year or so ago, I just appreciated it a lot more and thought it was really uh, recognized that's the work that went into it. And the performances were held up so much better for me the second time around. So that's the first one that came to mind.
1: To be really, really recent, I'd say I've come around now on Nightmare Alley. Oh, OK. I I thought it, when I first was on the podcast and originally had seen it, I thought it was like, oh, it's two movies that didn't fit together. But seeing it subsequently, they do come together very nicely. And now I'm thinking it's one of my favorite del Toro's.
5: I would wonder if because the film has a Best Picture nomination, Um, In the years to come, if that movie will be reevaluated by those that were, you know, a little mixed on it at the time, or even those who have never seen it and are like, you know, being completionists and are looking to watch every film nominated for Best Picture, and they'll hear that the word on it was that it was mixed at the time, so to speak, and they'll watch it and be like, what are you talking about? This is great. (laughs) So, yeah, I I kind of agree with you. I do think that that movie will be possibly reevaluated. Uh, in the years to come. Not to say that it got a bad reception when it came out. I just think that, like, it was not as euphoric. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, this one comes from Paul Rye. What are some of cinema's most overlooked mothers that don't get enough attention for their impact in a movie? Jennifer Aniston in The Iron Giant and Tony Collette in Little Miss Sunshine come to mind for me. Uh, first one that comes to mind... Scarlett Johansson and Jojo Rabbit. Nice. Okay, Yeah. Movie's not necessarily about her, but her impact on that movie, I think, is pretty considerable.
4: Hmm. Uh, I do think, I mean, I remember this was a performance that a lot of people talked about when the movie came out, but I feel like the film in general has sort of been a bit forgotten and people don't reference her as much anymore. But I do think that Jennifer Garner in Love Simon.
3: That <gasps> oh. I think
4: that was a really like wonderful performance and a great moment in that movie too. And nobody really talks about that film that much anymore, but I I still remember the impact that she had on in, in that film.
5: She's so great in Juno, too.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean that's like the more remembered Jennifer Garner mom ish performance, but I think that she's also really good in Love Simon.
5: Maria ate Casey. Actually, I don't know if that's how you pronounce that. It doesn't matter. Which movie from Cannes do you think is the Dark Horse for a Best Picture nomination? Uh, Sight Unseen? Well, if the uh, reactions are to be believed, it's Top Gun Maverick. But (laughs) uh, no, I I really think it probably is decision to leave. But
4: I mean, who knows? I mean, sight unseen, that's what I'm going to say, too. But it's always hard to judge until... We get the official reactions. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
5: Scott Kernan, which awards body has better taste when it comes to awarding Best Picture, Ampus or BAFTA? Uh,
4: <laughs> you know, I think I'm going to say
1: BAFTA. <sighs> I don't know. I, I think in recent years it's been Ampus.
5: Listen, I admire that BAFTA went for Power of the Dog last year, but they went 1917 over Parasite. They went Lala Land over Moonlight. They went with The Revenant. Josh.
2: Yeah, but they also went with Roma.
4: (sighs) Yeah. No, true. There's a bit of give and take here. I mean, yeah, it's. I would say that it is close, but I'm just saying overall. I mean, they also went with Boyhood over Birdman. So that's true.
2: They also did Free Billboards, which I know is controversial, but I still really love Free Billboards.
4: I mean, I still prefer that movie to Shape of Water. Maybe not by much, but I do think it is the better movie. I'm going to go. I'm going to go with Ampus, which I totally respect, too. It's very close is what I would say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Ampus for me.
4: Uh,
5: At V underscore Life of Dylan in the wake of Multiverse of Madness, what are your biggest letdowns at the movie theater? (laughs) (sighs) Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like on the podcast, I do tend to say often that I'm super disappointed or I'm let down. I went in with high expectations, like, uh, but I'm trying to think of like one off the top of my head now, because these are the movies that I tend not to remember so much because I was let down by them. But you know what? Yeah, If I'm referencing one from last year, I got to go with Last Night in Soho.
2: That was exactly my answer as well. Mm. I love Edgar Wright, and I know people do like the first two acts and really don't like the end. I just didn't like I liked the one scene that we get in the advert where she's going into like the mirror sort of backwards dimension for like the introduction to that world. That was the only bit I liked. I didn't like the introduction, I didn't like where the story was going. I hated the ending. And I love Edgar Wright, so yeah, that was easily the most disappointed I've been in a long time. Uh
4: I think one for me is uh it's not that recent it's like it's actually literally 10 years ago but it's the one that came up in my mind first and that was The Dark Knight rises. I remember walking into that movie like with such hype. It was probably my most anticipated movie of that year. Like I was so into Nolan, I love The Dark Knight and I, yeah, I walked out that movie feeling so defeated because I had such high expectations for it and it was very, very underwhelming.
5: It sucks because like, I don't think the movie is like out and out bad. Like I, I think it's like middle of the road average, if anything, maybe slightly above average because of Nolan's like, you know, sense of scale and practicality behind of how he makes movies. But yeah, man, oh, that was very disappointing. I I do have to agree with you. I actually think it's my least favorite Nolan movie. What oh, is by far my least favorite Nolan yeah.
1: film? And I would probably say the first Fantastic Beasts. Ooh, yeah. Because mm. I, I was on a Harry Potter high, and I thought, oh, boy, we got another one coming. This will be great. And it's like, oh, God, we're going to be stuck with these for the next 10 years. So I'd have to be that one recently. And that's where we are still. <laughs> still stuck. <laughs>
5: yeah.
0: I was going to say, I, I, the one that came to mind for me was Halloween Kills,
3: which, Ooh, yeah.
0: I mean, I wasn't an enormous fan of the recent, recent Halloween when they brought it back with David Gordon Green, but I thought it was pretty decent. And then, you know, given that they're doing more, I thought, OK, well, just the first one was decent and let's see what the next one does. And I just thought it
5: was awful. Nadia, evil dies tonight. <laughs>
0: awful 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 Uh, uh, not that I had enormous expectations going in but having seen the previous recent one thinking that was decent I thought okay well maybe they'll do something they'll kind of keep it going and it was just it just plummeted all over again it was terrible
5: I remember it premiered at Venice last year and thinking to (laughs) myself like oh this is this has to be great it's premiering at
4: Venice (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) little did we know i was i was so wrong (laughs) i did just think of one more and you're gonna think that this is a joke but it is not and that is the movie geostorm (laughs) (laughs) i don't know i know you think that I'm, i'm kidding but i'm not i actually went into that movie wanting to have a lot of fun with it but it was just so unbelievably boring and there wasn't enough geostorm in a movie called geostorm so for me that will always go down as like you can't I'm not expecting it to be great, but you gotta deliver at least like the bare minimum for me with these types of movies. And if you can't do that, like when I'm telling you that this is a bad movie, like it's really bad.
2: Yeah, I have one more as well. And kind of in the young adult sort of dystopian era that I was locked in. Um, I quite liked the first divergent movie. So I was like, okay, Insurgent, it's the next one in the series. I really love the book series. How are we gonna mess it up and that was such a disaster that it ended up, they didn't even bother the TV movie series that they were just going to put for the final two books. And I was like, this is horrendous. And I'm an easy target for his audience. And it was so bad. I don't know if anyone else actually saw Insurgents.
5: No, <laughs> I did not.
4: <laughs> I, I, don't I bailed see. after the first movie, honestly. <laughs> yep, same.
5: Check, please. Uh, Oscar Age, favorite movie theater experience with your mother?
4: Uh, I think I have mentioned this before, but I like it so much anyway, I'll say it again because it's the truth. Uh, When the first Lord of the Rings came out, Fellowship, I remember my mom reading in the newspaper like some editorial about the movie that talked about Howard Shore's score and the different themes. And I remember we actually went to see the movie again to specifically listen to the music and how it was incorporated. And I remember always that being my mom's idea. So that's the one that I always have in my mind. I took my mother to see Beauty and the Beast in 2017. And this is a good memory.
5: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I didn't like it, but (laughs) she was so happy to be there. And um, this was me taking her. This was not us going as a family with my sisters and my father, like this was just me and her. So I I think that that stands out to me, even though the movie wasn't good, just because I think she appreciated that I was taking her, just her.
1: Yeah. For me, it's my early memories of going to the movies with my mom were that she was taking me there to, for me, but the first time I ever saw her get into movies the way I was doing it was at the sound of music. Oh. She adored the sound of music. And I I'm watching it and I'm even even then it was like, I'm not, not crazy about this, but I just saw this look of just sure bliss on her face. And I'm thinking, mom gets what I'm going through it when I see a movie too. And so that was a that's a lovely memory I, I hold on to.
2: Um, for me, it'll be watching uh, Deathly Hallows Part Two for the first time with her because she introduced me to a series like the books that were written as part of my childhood. I was born, and then the books are there. So she always read me them, and we always had that shared connection. And since then, any time Harry Potter is showing in the cinema, doesn't matter which one, we will always book the day off and make sure we go and see it.
0: For me, it was um, the Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. We saw that together because that just introduced me to that trilogy, that incredible—I mean, The Fellowship of the Ring is one of my favorite movies of all time. And that's the first memory that I can think of when going back to what my mom and I have seen together. And it was such a special experience that
5: we both loved. I, too, have a similar experience like that, Nadia. That's very sweet. (laughs) Uh, Amanda B.W., in honor of Mother's Day, what is your mother's favorite movie? I do know the answer to this. Me too. It's actually a new one. And I remember she watched it. I remember she said it as soon as it was over. She said it loud and she said it emphatically. This is my new favorite movie. Greta Gerwig's Little Woman. Uh, My mom has a
2: very similar reaction to that. But she also (laughs) adored The Little Woman books. It's her favorite book. That's why I'm actually called Amy. Um, But otherwise... Uh. My mom also loves films such as like Serendipity and While You Were Sleeping. Those are the sort of movies that I know my mom sort of loves.
0: Yeah, for my mom, um, Little Woman was the most recent one that she absolutely loved. But her favorite is the 90s Drew Barrymore classic Ever After.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> With Angel- which also when we first, because she introduced me to that one as well. So that was my first introduction to Angelica Houston who I then saw in the witches which was also 90s and I just remember thinking oh my god these are the same person <laughs> um so that was one of my it was it was a it was a meaningful one for me but that that's her favorite she she loves those kind of 90s uh rom-com 90s kind of fairy tale romance
4: movies yeah there are several that i'm thinking of that could be this answer but i think if There was only going to be one that I had to say definitively. I think it would be The Line in Winter for her. Oh, interesting. Which is one of my favorite movies, too. I was going to say, so did she show it to you, Josh, originally, or did you show it to her? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, most of my, like, early film knowledge, especially with, like, older films, is 100% from my parents.
5: Love that. Miller's Movies. What do you guys do for work when you're not watching and reviewing cinema? Give your listeners a peek behind the curtain. You are all so great. Uh, I'm a account manager for a tech company.
2: I work at a cinema as a customer assistant, so I am always surrounded by movies.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, the days of working in a movie theater, I remember that. Yep, uh, <laughs> S- to be 16 and young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, well, and uh, <laughs> I I couldn't cut it out anymore. Like, that was rather grueling. I'm actually sort of glad not to have that job in <laughs> But it was fun while it lasted for me anyway. Uh, I am just basically like doing data entry for this like coupon company. So not the most exciting glamorous work, but hey, I get to work from home. (laughs) I'm appreciative of that. I wish
1: I had a data entry job. And I am retired. I had, (laughs) (laughs) believe me, I had worked uh, for as a television sensor in my last job. And so that was a that was it was it was a very interesting uh, uh, capper to my work life. And right now I'm just enjoying life and um, starting and finding this wonderful new career, writing about film. And uh, it's maybe the most satisfying job I have ever had. So happy about that.
0: And I am an event planner for a catering
5: company. I worked for a catering company once. Yeah. Yeah, I worked there for, like, Jesus, like, on and off for, like, ten years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, because I don't want to get into it. There's a lot. But, yeah, we'll talk about that more. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then uh, last question for this week. Coming from Isaiah Washington. In honor of Mother's Day, one's got to (sighs) go. I hate hate this. It's it's always so hard to make this decision every week. The category is Movie Moms. And the choices are Sarah Connor from the Terminator franchise, Marion McPherson from Ladybird, Helen Parr of The Incredibles, Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast. Happy Mother's Day.
2: (laughs) I can't lose any of these.
5: Oh, that is cruel. (laughs) Oh my lord. Okay. I don't have as much of an attachment to the Incredibles movies as so many others do because I saw those movies later in life. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Helen Parr. She can go, the other three can stay.
4: Oh I can't do that.
1: (laughs) (sighs) Well I'm not giving up Ladybird, that's for sure.
5: No. That that is my mom. Like I'm sure that's many of our moms.
0: That car Uh, scene?
5: Oh, yeah.
2: my God. (laughs) Can't give that up either.
1: Justice for Metcalf. (sighs) And Mrs. Potts is my grandmother, so...
2: Yeah, I can't lose Mrs. Potts. No. I I might just have to go with The Incredibles as well, but that just breaks my heart.
1: Oh, she's such a good character and a good mom. I know. Meanwhile,
5: Sarah Connor's, like, not the best mom, (laughs) but, like... (laughs) Well... (laughs) We're all
4: willing to hang on to her. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I don't do this with any joy, but I think I will say Mrs. Potts. Oh,
5: Oh, no. no. I'm just imagining Josh just dropping her and she shatters (laughs) into
4: pieces. (laughs) Yeah. This is not done with any enthusiasm. No. Chip like hops over. He's got tears coming
5: out of his eyes.
4: (laughs) Like we said, I don't want to get rid of any of them, but Incredibles means so much to me. I can't. And yeah, the same thing about Marion and and Lady Bird. And yeah, Sarah Connor, she's not the best mom, but like just the transformation from the first to the second alone. It's like, oh, it's just tough. It's not an easy decision. But if I'm forced to pick one, I'm going to say Mrs. Potts.
2: Oh, no. See be in the Beast is my favorite animated film of all time. Like, that is my number one. I am not taking her off. Oh,
1: so breaking my heart. Breaking my heart. <laughs>
0: yeah, as much as I hate to let her go, I gotta go with Helen Parr.
4: Oh, I can't. I can't yeah. do it for her. I mean, I just think about that scene on the airplane alone in the first Incredibles movie and, like, how just determined she is to get out of that situation, but also, like, protect her kids. Like, it gives me goosebumps every time I watch that scene.
0: Yeah, I think it's because I just I, maybe because I haven't seen it in a while, so it's not as fresh as Lady Bird, yeah. which I all just, the time and then, yeah.
4: And for me, it's my favorite Pixar film, so that's the other thing about it.
5: Yeah, all right. Well, thank you everyone for your questions. As always, episode 293 is coming to a close here. So, Amy Smith, where can they find you on
2: the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Films with Amy, Nadia.
0: You can find me on Twitter at NAD Reviews and on Instagram at Earth to Films.
1: Tom O'Brien. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas E. O'Brien.
5: And Josh Parham. And you can find me on Twitter at JR Parham. And you can find me in Next Best Picture. Happy Mother's Day once again to all of the moms out there. And thank you all very, very much for all of your support of this podcast. You can subscribe to us anywhere where you do subscribe to podcasts. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And if you want to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, drop us five stars, leave us a comment. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us, including Next Best Series, Next Best Theater, audio commentary tracks, and our 2012 retrospective, which we are going through right now as we speak. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, we shall see you all next time.